Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Hi, I'm George Chen, and you're listening to Sub Doc, a show where we talk about documentaries with guests from the worlds of comedy and film. On this episode, I spoke with documentary director William Badgley. Badgley has made two music documentaries and is wrapping up his third film about the crucial link between London's punk and reggae subcultures, DJ, archivist, and filmmaker Don Letts. I was able to catch an in-progress cut of the Letts film, Rebel Dread, at the Echo Park Film Center, so there's some talk about that version which will be different by the official release. You may be more familiar with his other films that are available on streaming services. Kill All Redneck Pricks, a film about the band Carp, and Here to Be Heard, The Story of the Slits. Both bands were hugely influential in vastly different ways for different generations. Carp has a small but mighty cult following, especially for the 90s Pacific Northwest, the scene that Badgley grew up in. The Slits were a wild band of young women in the first wave of UK punk. They broke up in the early 80s, then reformed with two principal members in the aughts, and kept touring until the death of singer Ari Up in 2010. Here to be Heard can currently be found streaming on Hulu, and Kill All Redneck Perks can be found on Amazon Prime. And now here's my interview with William Badgley. Yeah, you know, I just, uh, I've seen all the films. Hi, uh, Bill Badgley. You go by Bill? Oh, William? Bill, Bill is great. Yeah. Bill is uh, how I've heard all my friends refer to you as Bill. Yes. And uh, In person, it's Bill. I always use William on like, mm-hmm. paper and, and stuff like that. But yeah, it's yeah. Bill. Yeah. And you, uh, we, we saw your latest thing, uh, your latest film. I don't know how much we can talk about that. Uh, how, yeah. What do you it, feel about it? Well, talking about that no that's totally fine mm-hmm. but i want to clarify not a premiere an in progress an in progress yeah, yeah no yeah, i got yeah. to see an early screening because of our <laughs> mutual friend telling me that's that you're exactly going to do right. that at yeah. echo park film festival which is a uh, rebel dread yep. film about don letts exactly but if uh our listeners may have seen your two other films which are all you you're kind of like the music doc guy for a certain type yeah, of yeah, yeah, independent so far, yeah. punk kind of thing so uh here to be heard the mm-hmm. film about the slits and Kill a Redneck Pricks, the film about Carp. Yep. Uh, two of my favorite bands. Oh, nice. Uh, and also, like, I really liked Big Audio Dynamite. I think I'm in the, <laughs> maybe in America, maybe a little bit of a minority in being a fan of that band. I, I, you know, I've been hearing more about Big Audio Dynamite from people than I expected to yeah. hear. Because it's not, it's definitely of its era. I don't know how. I just, the other stuff is so famous. Right. Oh, you mean like the Clash? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, because, you know, there's a bunch of... The interesting thing about, you know, the Dawn film for me Mm -hmm. was that you jump from band to band because that's what he was doing. Mm -hmm. You know, like normally what I do, obviously, is, you know, settle in on a 90-minute narrative about one band. But since this is about an individual who's involved with many different bands, you know, the film is hopping around Mm -hmm. so of all of those choices yeah exactly you know there's clash sex pistols 
you know, even a bit of like fashion from the London, early London 70s scene. There's so many things to get touched on. It's funny at the end of it for people to go, you know, the finger lands on big audio dynamite. <laughs> and I'm just like, that's so rad. That's cool. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Were you a fan of that band? Or did you just meet him through doing the Slits documentary? I know. I met Don through uh, doing the Slits film. We got mm-hmm. a bunch of archival from him. He gave us a really great deal, which is, you know, key because Don owns about half of the Slits archival, at least half, maybe more. When you say own, how does, because he shot it. Because it's his 16 exactly, millimeter footage? Okay. because he shot it. That's how that works. Okay, yeah. Yeah. If you're like, um, you know... 15-year-old kid walks into a show in 1975 with a camera, you are the owner. <laughs> oh, like the, like the Grateful Dead bootleg <laughs> kind of situation. Yeah, yeah and yeah. when you talk to, to God, because I talked to a lot of these guys to film this stuff, um, you know, some of them are, you know, living in a house on the beach, you know, because it's in some of those scenes, if you're walking around at that time, you're getting stuff that, like, that's what you do for a living now, hmm. is, is sell that stuff, because it's you know, like London in the middle seventies, that's quite a cross reference of things that you could have potentially been shooting that people would be really interested in. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that because both, uh, the Slits film and Don Let's film was really living in that yeah. birth of punk era. And like, I think the two places that people just can't get enough of uh-huh. at this <laughs> point in time seems to be like London around 76, New York, 77. Which, right. which Don did both. <laughs> he did both, right. He was yeah. everywhere. He yeah, really there was is kind everywhere. of a funny thing uh, in the movie where it becomes not, not a versus type situation, but, you know, there's large sections of the film that are very much like located in London and then large sections of the film that are also like very much located in New York, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I think, fun. I think one of the cool things is that it doesn't compare the two punk scenes. Mm-hmm. Your you film know? doesn't, right? No, yeah, yeah. no, not at all, because they sort of do London punk where they're bringing together reggae and uh, punk, and then they go to New York, and there's this great line in the film that Don says where he's like, and now it's about punk and hip-hop, mm. you know? Right. And, and and so, it, like, this thing just keeping going. Um, but it's always fun to... London and New York go well together Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know what i mean like i always like i lived in new york for 13 years and i spent a lot of time in london and people always say that there requires no translation like like if you love london like la and new york lots of translation (laughs) la and london lots of translation Mm -hmm. but if you get along well in either london you know or new york the other one Easy peasy. You either learn to live very cheap or you're already loaded. I think those are two things. It's a very similar way of communicating those two cities. Right, right. Yeah. I could see that. And I I think um, what I was thinking when watching uh, the Don Letts film is just about, because it definitely is about how this generation of Jamaican immigrants like kind of failed to integrate into the UK. And I was thinking about how that. American hardcore is sort of divorced from the black roots of music in a, in a way. Oh, right. It's yeah, sort of yeah, like yeah. American hardcore is sort of like white suburban kids, like kind of trying to like take all of all the edge and then kind of losing like any sort of the 
blues-based elements of rock music. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting thing about the Dawn story. I mean, for me particularly as an American, Mm -hmm. growing up in the shadow of punk and certainly in the middle of like post-punk and post-post-punk, whatever you want to call it, uh, is that it, it didn't happen here. Yeah, the the punk reggae thing didn't happen here. Not and till Sublime. He, well, yeah, and so I was Long like, Beach core. Yeah. I was like, you know, this would make all my my friends in the UK just like totally cringe. But like when I was coming out of the grunge thing, going to college, um, having my own bands, reggae amongst everybody that I knew in the music scene was like blacklight poster, college kid, like completely clueless from the middle of America, like taupe carpets, stucco walls, smoking a joint and wearing flip-flops and talking about Bob Marley, mm-hmm. <laughs> which yeah. is like so like upsetting once you find out about these people. And then, you know, when you when you find out about them, you see like, oh, of course this happened and how beautiful it is and how wonderful it is. But it was just, it's just kind of funny because just did not happen in the U S right. So it's a fun story to tell in the sense of, especially in the U S um, of saying like, Hey, you know, like kind of, which is a great thing docs just do in general is sort of mm-hmm. knocking on the door and being like, like, look, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> and like the reggae punk overlap is obviously like a lot of the heart of the slit story, I think. Yeah, too. yeah, definitely. And I, I wanted to know more about this period when Ari, Ari was living in Jamaica or I guess she was like commuting between Jamaica and. Yeah. New York, you know, it's funny kind of that you say that because yeah. our original uh, one of the original ideas for the film was to make a film just about Ari. Yeah, yeah. Right? And um, Which at that time you were working on this, she had already passed on. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. So. exactly. And so uh, we didn't end up doing that. Uh, decided to make a film about the band instead. But when we got to that part, there's a few sentences about it. But she basically just like leaves and comes back because mm-hmm. it's told from the point of view of the band. But that like sort of leave and come back that happens in the movie in like two minutes is like 15 years and could easily be its own film. Right. Cause I, I mean, it probably should be its own film. Can't find a lot about it, just like, you know, Googling about it this period where she's like, you know, I, I don't think it's Googleable information. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, I think, um, you know, some of it literally happens in the jungle in the beginning part of it, you know, where she's literally like, um, you know, barefoot and pregnant in the jungle. And goes off and has these two kids. Um, but then when it goes to Jamaica, it's Jamaica, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's dangerous, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, it just depends on how far you want to get into that stuff, you know, uh, and who you want to believe and like all the rest of it. But there's a lot going on. I mean, okay. Jamaica is a very, you know, complicated place i would imagine you had insider access to any sort of home movies or home film from that period though right or would that would that be gone through uh her kids or how where is that stuff i think some through her kids some through friends Mm -hmm. i didn't spend a lot of time on it because we decided sort of early on um you know 
for better or for worse that we were going to make a sluts film. And, and it's always the case. Um, and it was the case as well with the Dawn film. It's been a case on every film I worked on is that you're making a film about an interesting person. Hopefully interesting people are surrounded by other interesting people. So there's a lot of opportunity to get sidetracked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the one thing a film really can't do is get sidetracked. Right. You know, I mean, so it's always this dance of like showing to people a lot of different stuff and going off the rails, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. So and even inside the band uh, in Kill All Redneck Pricks, there was a member that I felt constantly trying, not him personally, but just his subject matter, d- trying to derail the film to be about him and I had to just kind of like just smash I would in my mind I would think about like just trying to like like put my hand on his head and being like you cannot mm-hmm. only be in a third of this movie <laughs> you cannot be in 98% of this film because you're only 33% of this band yeah So working on the Don Letts film must feel, is it more liberating in a way to just have the focus? Oh my God, to concentrate on one person. It was the first thing I thought when I knew we were going to do this film. I was like, oh my God, only one storyteller. How awesome is that? Because usually there's like four people telling a totally contradictory stories. But that to me is not even the harder part. It's that... um, the hard part with four is that they legitimately have four different stories. Mm-hmm. And so even some flack I got on the slit sock was, you know, that like it, it went down too many different roads with too many of the different people. And it's like, but all these people are in this band. Oh, right. Right. Because I guess <laughs> you know, the like, Mark, the, the two thousands version of the band, there's only two original people. And then there's you have a lot of interview footage with like the other people that were later in the band too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like and the I people just, that started the band, like the other right. the members. I mean, that I just chose to stay in the band. Yeah, yeah. You know, and we did. And that being said, we did follow the side roads of the band members who left mm-hmm. a bit, and then we came back to them in the end. Um, and you're never going to make uh, you know everybody happy. I mean, one of the interesting things about music docs that I've been or music films just in general. This really was spawned on by the reaction that Bohemian Rhapsody was getting, and I was paying attention to it and you know, looking at it. So, uh, was this thing that um, it's this really interesting set of parameters that a music doc uh, faces that a narrative film does not face? Like, could you imagine if Star Wars came out in 1977 and everybody had already decided what Star Wars was like for 15 years before mm. opening night? Narratives don't face this. Mm-hmm. But we face this every single time we put out a movie is that everybody has already decided mm-hmm. in their bedroom alone mm-hmm. 10 years earlier what this band is about. Mm-hmm. 
So when you do opening night, you're going up against all of that. Mm -hmm. And that's just a completely unique set of circumstances for music films, which I just think is really interesting. Right, because it's so personal. The people's course, relationship yeah. to the music is so personal. Absolutely, the reason. Right. Yeah. But in the case of something like Carp, where it's like they were huge to a small group of people. <laughs> very small group. So of people, yeah. when it's more like this is a chance to introduce them to be a and, very small yeah. but very energetic group of people. This is I have true. to say, still getting emails from them. They they're <laughs> very. I call them Carp heads. Yeah. yeah they're <laughs> they're hardcore. I mean, it's sort of like what people say about the Velvet Underground, right? They only played so many shows oh, right. with so many people, but then everyone started a band. It's like there's a lot of bands that sound like Carp, like still. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, you know, they they just had um, they were the band I saw the most times on purpose of any mm-hmm. band. Yeah, um, and they, they just uh, you know, like I think uh, hopefully that the film makes clear. I you know they were it was a story about a friendship. Yeah. Um, and they're just such a good example of that. There was, a, I, I mean, I considered myself a fan and there were sort of like outlines of some of the things that I had heard about, but like, mm-hmm. I did not expect like to, I, you know, what I saw in the film. Like, yeah. And that was a story that I think Northwesterners knew, right? you know, like it, like the Northwesterners, um, in the music scene knew. Yeah. Um, and I, well, I knew about right. Like I knew about like the suicide attempt and then I knew that, I mean, also, you, you've done two films where major components of the film are people that are not available for direct yeah, interviews. Yeah, right, right, right. So in two of your films, it's not like that's currently it's living. An, yeah, yeah. It's a hard, it's a hard thing to kind of just have. Yeah, archival. and I think uh, the the approaches of those two were totally different. Mm-hmm. The first one um, was somehow we it seemed from the stories that I've or things I've been hearing people say we somehow got away with. Um, it not really dawning on you when you watch it that he isn't there until he dies. So it's like mm-hmm. dancing on this really interesting timing mm-hmm. where as soon as you're about to like, hey, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, oh, he's dead. You're like, oh, yeah. shit. Oh, fuck. Yeah. You know, like you're just like, I'm it. always now every like I just did you see through identical strangers? I did, yeah. Yeah, it's like that question comes up like right away. I'm just like, okay, there's these guys. Oh, what? totally over my head. <laughs> you totally, know, you didn't totally think about it. it. Oh, you did? No, because they look so, I'm a big oh. picture guy. I'm a macro guy. Don't do details. Yeah. So I was just like, I could not keep straight who I was. Oh, as far okay. as I'm concerned, I saw three brothers. Okay. Because <laughs> they all looked exactly, almost yeah. the, exactly the same. And they're cutting back and forth between these two guys, right? Yeah. And in my like macro mind... I can't. I'm, I'm seeing like you know everything they're talking okay, about. So, okay. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah. I guess. I guess. Completely <laughs> fooled me. Yeah. No. I flew over your head. Now there, there is like a rumor. There's two rumors that I've heard about Carp that maybe you oh, would know uh-huh. sure. the stories. The first one is that they had done a cable access show. I feel like oh, you would. Beef. Oh, they did. They, that was a rumor that I'd heard. And yeah, I'm it's like, in the film. It is in the film? There's it's footage in the of, film. There's and footage it's from also that? Uh, on the, we did a like a fifth anniversary DVD. Oh, okay. Double DVD release that I do not have any copies of. Um, and uh, it was on there. As well. Okay, okay. I think it, but, it was uh, not I, in the film. It I is just literally remember. Wayne's World. 
Right. Okay. It's just them in a base. Like, okay, here's a really interesting story. So when I was touring the film in England, uh, we did a bunch of theatrical screenings of, of that film too. I think mm-hmm. 70 in 10 countries. And when we screened it in, um, it was not in England, it was in Wales. Okay. In the back of this bar, uh, they just didn't want to go home after it was over. It was like, uh, I think it was in Cardiff or Newport. And anyway. you know, they never toured Europe, did they? No, they never no, got no, over no, there. No, no, okay, no. so it's all just no. So we're fans. sitting in this yeah. bar, everybody's drinking, and we watched the movie, and then they just didn't leave. And so I was like, "Well, I don't know what you guys want to do now, because I just showed you the movie, and no, literally, no one was leaving. So uh, they were just like, "Well, what else? What else you got?" And I, was <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. And I just started like pulling out like this stuff, and we watched Beef. Okay, and they. Their minds exploded. <laughs> they were like the parts of their brains were left on the walls in that room because they don't have. I mean, they have no public access. The word. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that's a completely American thing. I mean, you know, they have actual public access, which is the BBC, right? Right. But our like yeah, sort DIY, of weird yeah. little version of it is completely alien to them. And the, but at the same time, super uh, interesting to them because of Wayne's world. Oh, right. Okay. Right. So all of these people had seen Wayne's world and they, I think in their minds where they were like, this is Hollywood. <laughs> right. And then, and then I was literally that. walking up to them and being like, this is not Hollywood. Th- that was a document. Wayne's World is a documentary. <laughs> you know, right. I mean? Penelope Spears made it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they were just like, whoa. Like they, they couldn't get past so that. So I'm unclear on which footage it was. It's like the not the practice footage. I'm trying to think it of like which footage. It is sort of practice okay. footage because yeah. I don't know. I can't remember now. That movie came mm-hmm. out so long ago. Because I've like, never I, seen I, I can't remember beef. now. Uh, <laughs> I didn't right. know the name of it. I just heard that they did it and people kind of describe do you know zach carlson oh yeah i feel like maybe i heard about this from zach carlson maybe some other people yeah yeah like i'm like those guys i don't know i just the first time i ever saw them i was just like so confused by their deal i'm like it's very goofy they're very goofy. Oh, very goofy. But don't <laughs> sound goofy. They don't sound goofy. Are goofy. Sound, yeah, yeah, right. Are goofy <laughs> while sounding pretty. Well, and that yeah. was the whole sort of magic of the shows uh, was the sugar and, and the, the salt. Because it was like the music obviously was very aggressive. Um, but then in between it was literally like slapstick. <laughs> right. Like that recording, that KXLU recording where they're just riffing in between oh, everything. it's just yeah. literally just three nerds. Yeah. that are way too comfortable with each other. Um, they're practically dating the way that young, you know, kids can do, mm-hmm. um, you know, that are just like jabbing and poking and there's mm-hmm. no, and also I think it plays into this thing in Olympia that was changing at that time was that in the Northwest, and I've even dealt with this since I've moved to Los Angeles, is that in the Northwest, you just assume that no one is watching. Like in that time period, you assume that no one you're talking to is ever going to be famous, ever was famous, ever will be famous, including yourself. And so you just say whatever stupid thing pops in your head all the time. And even since I've been here, I've just been like, oh, you know, you should think about what movies you slam at the bar. (laughs) 
because I've <laughs> literally, around you. Yeah. yeah, I've literally had a situation where I was when I first moved here, I was knocking this film, and the guy was like, "Oh yeah, I worked on that for three years." Oh. You're just like, "Oh, that's now what do we do?" Okay, well. <laughs> Do we just stand here for a while and then I'll just leave or what? Like, how does this work? Yeah. Coming from the Bay Area, I guess that would be like me talking shit about Uber in a bar. But then if someone was like, hey, I worked there. I'd be like, yeah, yeah. Listen to what I said. (laughs) So I think they had a bit of that going on where they were just kind of like, you know, they're kids. There's no filter. Yeah. You know, and then, of course, that changed in a a, a huge way is that there were people nationally and internationally looking at this tiny little town in Washington, mm-hmm. uh, which is what made it get really interesting and, and also tragic. Yeah. And you <laughs> never lived in Olympia. I did. Yeah. Oh, you did live there. Yeah. I lived okay. there uh, sort of post. I lived there in 1995. Okay. 94 was this, uh, essentially the year that um, that scene was like attacked, quote unquote, by the rest of probably mostly like the West Coast, mm-hmm. but possibly the entire country. Some would argue the entire world. Um, I was, you know, from the state and had been visiting there for shows for a while. So I don't know if I would necessarily be grouped into those numbers, mm-hmm. but it was um, it was when it started. The worm has turned. If you've heard that <laughs> expression, yeah. I, I it, you know what I mean? It was starting to get like different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like people moving there to try and make it or yeah, something. It changes yeah. everything. Yeah. So you had been, or did you had an interest in film the whole time as well? Or were you no. Doing, no. So film, there's a radical change at some point. Where For you me, get into film. It's, it's just stories. Mm-hmm. And story can take many shapes. You know, music, as we just discussed, films, paintings. I don't paint, but, mm-hmm. you know, anything. It can be anything. And to me, the story is important. I hope to end up writing a book at some point. Um, to me, that, that's like the really tough one mm-hmm. uh just started writing screenplays which is interesting because i wrote a lot of um a lot of people don't know this or they don't think about it but we write scripts for docs mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. like we write outlines and we write scripts and so the interesting thing i've seen recently like i credit myself as a writer uh for the films um, because to me, that's a very legitimate acknowledgement of the work that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, I didn't start it. Who started it? Oh my God. Inside job, the financial crisis film. Uh-huh. They credited, uh, their editors as co co-writers. And I was like, so impressed that they did that. Um, but then I was reading, which you should never do. I was reading reviews of here to be heard the other day. And this guy was like, I don't know why he says, I can't help but do him in his voice. He's, yeah. like, he's like, I don't know why it says writer on there. He didn't write anything. Oh. And it's just like, I think it speaks out of a gross misunderstanding yeah. of what writing means mm-hmm. in documentary. I, 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 I don't do this, but I wanted to type back like, so how do you feel those sentences got in that order? <laughs> like, right, I right. just want to hear your take on yeah. how you feel like they just magic together. Yeah. Because in documentary, that's that's writing, writing right. story. You're organ like you're definitely like uh, you got to log everything. You got to log all the interviews. <laughs> you got to conduct the interviews. You got to do and also media I think, organization. Yeah, that's yeah a and huge you were doing in the Don Let's film. I'm assuming these are gonna all be in there. Like you have re- like I don't know if you, what do you call it reenactments. Reenactments. Yeah, yeah. Reenactments. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you haven't really done that with the other films. No, at all. I yeah. sort of did it in the Carf talk. 
Oh, is there some reenactment stuff? Yeah, it's like hands and feet type stuff. Oh, okay. But yeah. In fact, I always miss those. Like people always have to point them out to me. Like when we interviewed Ronnie Asher, he's like, you know, now that I think about it, I don't know if any of them remained in. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they did. We did a lot of location heavy stuff in there. Um, well, okay, so this, yeah, they sort of did. They did mm-hmm. in the van. Okay. Because there's shots of the van driving around mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, but yeah, no more. With the set, though, with the Don Letts, there's like stuff on a set. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We did a black box like. You're directing actors. <laughs> yeah, and is that's that your first the, time directing actors? <laughs> uh, it is, other than music videos. Okay, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and I went straight to the dumbest thing they say you could possibly do, which is to direct kids. Oh, right, yeah. And uh, it was really funny because I had a really interesting problem on that set, which mm-hmm. I would have never seen coming. Uh, which is that the kid that played the young Don is about eight years old. And it's heavy stuff. It's like about oh, yeah. this racist political speech coming out yeah. and basically obliterating the sort of non-racial environment that they were living in, which there's the dribble down racism that the kids are spouting from the parents. Mm-hmm. Like they're starting to, they're coming to school and all of a sudden they're hearing all these terrible terms, which are listed in the film, um, you know, and they're directing, um, you know, Don, Don says, I was no longer their pal, Letsy. I was you, black bastard. Mm-hmm. It was such a powerful line. And so this this child actor, uh, you know, we didn't go into gory details with him, of course, but it was like, you know, we're going to do these scenes and they're going to be serious, you know, and Elvin, I want you to, you know, be serious. And this was such a happy kid. Aww. I felt like a monster <laughs> being like, Elvin, you got to quit smiling, man. I was like, you gotta quit. Smiling. I'm like, I, so what I'm doing for my job today is just ruining this <laughs> wonderful child. child. Like that's all I'm doing here yeah. today. Just oh. Being like, we had to do take after take after take. Yeah. He's just Looks like sad, huge, <laughs> just shit eating grin on his face. Uh, He's like the happiest eight year old I have ever met <laughs> in my life. Oh, but man. we managed to like. It was easy to select takes because well, this is the only one that Elvin is not smiling in. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, but yeah, he, he was great. And also, uh, this is really interesting. He was terribly afraid of matches. You know that scene where he uh, lights the um, desk on fire? Oh, yeah. It took me over an hour to get him to light that match. Oh, just he's so afraid of it. Right, just even that, yeah. And somebody brought up the point that like I was like, doesn't it seem weird to anybody else that an eight-year-old boy is like, isn't that the classic like you got to keep an eight-year-old boy away from matches? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, but this is like you know iPads, yeah, world. They were like, D- they don't do that anymore, right? Yeah. And so, I was like, what? Well, my mind was blown on that one. I was just <laughs> like, okay, that's cool. Yeah, you gotta get those easy strikes for the eight-year-olds. Um, yeah. Uh, I wanted to go back and go back to the other carp sure, question sure. I had, and I don't know if you have heard this too. There supposedly uh, a DJ at KXLU like announced somehow. I don't know how this word got out, but a, a DJ at KXLU like announced that uh, there was a suicide attempt, on, or he actually announced it as in he's passed. He's passed away. 
And have you ever heard this story? I've never heard of that before. Yeah, and I'm trying to n- find out like how I where I can't remember. It's in the back of my head. Someone just telling me the story. It's like, oh yeah, they announced on KXLU that he had died, and then, uh, then. <laughs> It sounds like the kind of thing that could easily happen. It could easily happen. A college radio DJ very easily. And then the story was then later they, uh, you know, uh, uh, like then the punishment was KXLU stopped getting promos from all the Pacific Northwest labels. I'm like, that's a very weird thing to. uh, Okay, so you've never heard that. No, I figure uh, if there was audio of it somewhere that would have gotten out uh, and someone would have told you about it. So it might just be apocryphal, uh, like weird folklore that I've heard. Yeah, I yeah, sounds like sounds it. Sounds like a bizarre thing. I mean, I spent four years on that project, so yeah. I heard... I'm sure you heard everything. I'm not going to say I heard all the stories, yeah. but I heard a great quantity of them. Yeah. And which is actually really funny about uh, opening night and the mm-hmm. theatrical runs, and I completely understand how it happens, but it is still kind of funny to me that, like, you spend X amount of years on these things, and you're every day for mm-hmm. years listening to these stories and stuff. And then what happens when you're done, your reward is to hear more of the stories <laughs> yeah. from everyone that just watched it out yeah. of the lobby afterwards. <laughs> You're yeah. like, oh, okay, we're going to hear more of these stories. Well, I mean, I'm sure you, you sh- did you show it at the Capitol Theater or anything like oh, that? Oh, yeah. yeah. How Huge. Is, oh, man. That was, uh, a lot of I was tears. just remembering because yeah. the Slitstock did bigger screenings than this, but at that time it was by far the biggest screening I'd ever done. It was 144 People, which is funny to say now because it's not actually that many people. Mm-hmm. Um, the Slits uh, did like that much like every night for like 30 nights mm-hmm. in like the UK. And some of those got up to like 300, but um, much bigger band. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and just vocal. I mean, that was a quintessential hometown screening. Mm-hmm. Like I almost wish we had taped the audience I didn't know it was coming, so I had no way of knowing. But it is was there a like theater in Tumwater? Everybody <laughs> just like, yeah. you know, whoa, yeah, just really interactive. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. And, and did you have a relationship with those guys? Yeah. So uh, how does this work? So when I got my band together in 97, 97 was the year. No, we got together in 98. 97 was the year that Carp broke up. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, their subsequent bands we played with because we were doing pretty well in the Northwest. So like the whip. Right. Would yes. like open up for us. Yeah. Initially. Right. Uh, and then, and also um, big business, you know, yeah. quickly eclipsed us, of course. But uh, when they first started out, you know, they, they would come. So yeah, we knew them. And then mm-hmm. um, Mercy Devils, we played shows with them um, and Matt Cody who would go on to be in big business. And mm-hmm. I was just remembering the other day we got a, during um, Mercy Devil's time period, we, this is so Northwest. We went to a house party and got wasted and then everybody was wrestling out in front, of, which is weird because this is a very, this is back like when people who like sports and people who like music did not mix. My little sister is so funny because she still won't accept it. Like now that it's like okay to like both, mm-hmm. my sister's like, no, 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 no way. My little right, sister, right, yeah. my little right girl <laughs> sister, she's just like, absolutely, you cannot like music and football. Oh. That is not because that's how it was. That's, <laughs> right, right, right. That's the way it was when we grew up for sure. But so we were all wrestling in the um, front yard, and I remember Cody just laid me out, man. He, yeah, 
He's a good wrestler. I don't suggest anybody that's listening. Don't, <laughs> don't wrestle, wrestle that guy. Cody from Big Business. <laughs> so, and then when did you conceptualize that you should, that was it just, was it your thought like, you know, I, someone needs to make a carp doc or how did this kind of formulate the carp doc? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the really interesting, huge, huge takeaways for me uh, from that time period was that people didn't want me to do it. Oh, really? A lot of people didn't want me to do it. Not the band, Mm -hmm. just people in the Northwest, which is funny to think about now because I think it's safe to say that people have really embraced uh, that movie and uh, people really like it and and, uh, have, you know, been happy with it. But totally differently when i started it people were like it's just two part you know like it's they're too just, soon kind of a too soon well it's not like too soon it was like too personal okay the northwest is you know it's not like this anymore um but you know the northwest is very like they're off in the corner of the country for a reason it's not an accident mm-hmm. you know what i mean uh culturally it's a really interesting place to me because it's the farthest place that you can go and still be in the united states and most of those people walked there not them, but their ancestors, okay. right? If you if you've been in the Northwest, like my family has since like you know um, the late nineteenth century, those people did not get on a maybe even a train because mm-hmm. they were too poor. You know what I mean? Like a lot of people got to the East Coast, lost a bunch of money, and then walked to the Midwest, lost more money there, and then walked to the West Coast. And that was why they're there. Mm-hmm. And so people just have this attitude, like, just stay out mm-hmm. of it. You know, I was a Northwesterner, but they were just like, this is too personal. Um, just don't get into it. And um, I just didn't follow that uh-huh. reasoning. And what I found out was a very classic thing with documentary is that you become a bit like a psychiatrist and a lot of, not that I could give any like solid medical advice, but, but just in the sense that they've just been, that ended badly, that story, right? And so you got yes. all these people that are walking, or there's no other way to slice it. It was mm-hmm. a really terrible thing in the end that mm-hmm. happened. So you got all these people that are walking around and they're just not talking to anybody about it. And they just don't feel good about it. And so here's this guy that they get sort of permission to talk to about it because A, I was a Northwestern and B, I was from the music scene and C, the band was saying like, sure, Mm -hmm. go ahead and talk to this guy. Then they were just like, oh yeah, I'm just going to unload, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, lay my burden down. (laughs) It's like the Christians would say, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just like just carrying around this heavy thing. Yeah. And that's good for people to get it out. Mm -hmm. And so, and so, yeah, it was, but I think we were able to kind of, it was funny with Chris because Chris was so honest about sabotaging the band and, um, exploding his own life and all this kind of stuff that I, from a filmmaking standpoint was like, dude, I cannot end this movie with Chris sucks and Jared is awesome. You know what I mean? Like that can't be the ending, right? Mm -hmm. Like, let's give you your dignity back, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, what is something cool that we can say about you after we said all this negative stuff? Um, and it was, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't say it, couldn't give it to me. And I ended up, but I knew I needed it. So I ended up going back to the very first interview we did. And he said this one line where he said, I'm one of the 2%. 
that makes it out of heroin um, alive. Yeah. And, or, you know, out of jail or out of, or whatever. And that line was all we needed. People wrote me and they can always, I can practically like smell these emails. Now you look at them and the first line is like, I am one of that 2% where mm-hmm. it's a heroin addict being like, I fucking made it. Mm-hmm. I made it out. And they just gave him, gave them so much pride because they got lots of stuff to feel bad about. And not very much stuff to feel good about. And everybody's got to have something to feel good about Mm -hmm. or it's so hard. Mm -hmm. So it became a kind of a really good thing Mm -hmm. to give somebody back and just be like, this is, you know, in the end, it sort of made it as cool as Jared joining the Melvins because they're both statistically like kind of <laughs> somewhat difficult. More people you know? have been in the Melvins. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go over no, 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 the same no. thing, but it's kind yeah. of a funny joke. Yeah. yeah. And oh, you must have. Do you, I was at that whip show in Oakland that oh, I think cool, you have yeah. footage of. So you might have the entire show on tape somewhere, right? Oh, yeah. That's like, as I remember, that's a seven parter mm-hmm. on uh, YouTube. I think it's on YouTube. Oh, it's not just on YouTube. Okay. I think so. I have not gone through. It's like one of those. Isn't I'm like, am I, am I in this? Am I somewhere in the Yeah, you background? can go crowd surfing for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in the opening credits. Oh, you in are? In the show yeah. and my bandmates as well. Okay. So how did you end up working on the Slits documentary? Was that somehow an outgrowth of working on uh, the Carp documentary? Sort of. I um, Let's see. How did this happen? So a friend of mine that I was uh, playing lots of shows with, uh, Jennifer, uh, was oh, right. in this band called the Sh- uh, Shell Shack. Yeah, right. 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 Yeah. So FedEx played shows with them. On the film, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, FedEx and Shellshack had played a bunch of shows together. Um, we were total buddies. I lived with them at one point um, in New York. Um, <laughs> they wrote a song about me uh, called, um, uh, I think it's called Bill Badgley, Please Don't Let Me Fade Away, which is cool because it's got my full Your name. full in name it. in there, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I left New York for a while and came back and I was went to a show and there was like this group of like young people like shouting my name, but didn't know who I, but at the same time, like looking at me like, Oh, you should leave the show. <laughs> like, who are you? Yeah. You're old. Yeah, I'm um, up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So, uh, that, that was kind of rewarding, but yeah, so, um, we were just friends and I transitioned into filmmaking and Jennifer had been the tour manager for the slits in 2010 and, um, excuse me, 2005. And uh, when Ari passed away in 2010, they were sort of knee-deep, waist-deep, whatever you want to call it, in making a film, but no particular plan. And Jennifer uh, is not a filmmaker. And so when Ari passed away, she was just really put in, like, the worst possible position where she's, like, grieving the death of this person. And also I have to do this, like, really 
like nearly impossible thing. Mm-hmm. And so I just finished um, Kill All Redneck Pricks. And so she was like, do you want to do this? And I actually said no at first because I was terrified of clearing major label music. Yeah. Which is just a money conversation, you know. I'm The carp thing was cool because it was just my own um, hard will that was going to make it happen or not. Um, but there's no amount of DIY stick to that's going to pay Island a major records. label. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, just like the, you know, good falls where he's fuck you, pay me. Mm-hmm. So you got to figure out how to pay them. Um, and, you know, which is fine, but it's just, you got to figure it out. And so I was like, yeah, I don't know. It sounds, I don't know if I can do it. And then two weeks later I woke up and I was just like, just, you know, it's too amazing of an opportunity. I mean, one thing is too ridiculous that this hasn't already happened. Right. And B, it's ridiculous that you get to do it. And so C, like, just do it. And so I did it. And of course, three years later, all of our intense nightmares came true. And we lived in a waking hell uh, trying to figure out how to clear this music. But Uh eventually through like luck and happenstance, um, did end up connecting with the correct people that have the kind of financial juice um, and not just financial juice, um, you know, connect connectivity sort of juice um, to make it happen. And we did. And now I work with these people every day. Supervi- music supervisors or no, licensing? like uh, financers and producers oh, okay. and mm-hmm. people with scratch that are just like, let's just do this. Like, mm-hmm. even though it's like fiscally probably a terrible idea, like let's just do it anyway. Yeah, it's good that, I mean, that seems to be a problem that when I talk to other people about like, hey, how come this movie is not available? How come this thing? It's always Always like, and like often music rights, like a lot of old TV shows. Which is money. Yeah, it's money. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's about money. And your new film has the Clash songs in it. Okay, well, so the interesting thing uh, about the Dawn film is that Dawn is an archivist, obviously. Uh, It's two, two big things. One is that Dawn is an archivist. Uh, and so he's been making, you know, movies out of his archive for a long time and selling the stuff to other people. Uh, as far as I know, I'm pretty confident in saying this. I'm pretty sure that I'm the only person that's ever been handed like a drive with the entire archive on it. It's hundreds of hours. It's wow. like 200 and something hours. And uh, Don was just like blowing the load. You know, he was like, this is a film about me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess, you know, he decided one of the producers has known him for a really long time. I knew him from the slit stock. Um, and he was just like, for whatever reason, he was just like, let's just do this. And I'm all in, mm-hmm. which is very Don, you know, uh, as you probably could tell from the movie, like with Don's in, he's in, yeah. you know, he's not a halfway kind of guy um, in any <laughs> way of speaking about him. Um yeah, not in dressing, not even in talking, nothing. Mm-hmm. He's an all all for it uh, type of dude. So that was cool because they that stuff's so expensive, they charge for it by the second or by the minute, mm-hmm. which becomes by the second. Oh, like if he had charged you, right, he charges someone else externally. Not possible. Right, you couldn't have done it. Not it with like, the amount of footage that's in mm-hmm. that movie, mm-hmm. which is a lot. 
And it was really fun from a cutting perspective because with slits, you have to sort of, you know, constantly be of two minds where you're like, so like artistically, what do we want to do? You answer that question for yourself and then you do it. And then you sit down with like a pad of paper and add up like every second and go, now can we afford Mm -hmm. to do, it's like driving with handcuffs on, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like, and then maybe a lot of times the answer to that question is no, we cannot afford to do that that way. You have to recut it again. And, and and when you're working on music documentaries, that's like by nature, it's got to have the music in it. You know, it's upsetting to me, but people just don't care about mm-hmm. anything but the archival. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that's all the way true, but it certainly feels I, it's definitely true enough to say that you cannot make a music film without archival and expect people to be happy. Mm-hmm. You must Give them as much archival as you have the ability financially and whatever legally mm-hmm. uh, to give them, which is why when I watch the Ron Howard Beatles movie, I'm like, okay, he's just bragging. <laughs> that eight days a week thing, they never cut to camera hardly ever on anybody. It's just this bath of the most expensive footage in the world. And I was almost like hard for me to watch because I was like, okay, I mean, I understand this is Ron Howard, but I'm like, this is just like, He's just brag. This is just, this is just like look at it. It feels like ninety minutes of like look what I did. Like, you, look at what is there a project that you have wanted to take on that you just were like, I it's gonna be too. I can't get the the backing to do it. Um, not so much mm-hmm. because I one thing I've always done, even when I played in mu- uh, bands, is that I stayed pretty. To me, it's all about work. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a workaholic. I love work. I never got into drugs or alcohol because I love stress. <laughs> like, I don't think I knew that when I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And of course, I dabbled. But in music, you know, I see all these people like dropping off like flies, you know, into drug and alcohol addiction and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then when I got older and I was looking back and I was like, oh, you're just too like much of an anal white guy <laughs> for that particularly to have happened because mm-hmm. I just love stress. Like if I leak, if I get into a situation, it's weird to live in LA where stress hardly even exists. Oh, but it's drive, like, you know, <laughs> but it's like if I get to a situation where stress leaves, I, I, it's the only time I fall apart. Mm-hmm. I immediately have to put stress back on my shoulders. So all that to say is I, I just want to keep working. So I constantly, I don't even pay attention to anything that isn't a possible work scenario for me. I don't even think about it. I'm only thinking about what I can actually work on because mm-hmm. I just only want to work. Well, that was going to bring me to another question about something I just found out you were involved in, which is this documentary center. Which, oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. like, I'm like, I was like, wait, he also does what? Like, you're making, yeah, you made three films, and you're also created a like workshop kind of it's co-working a co-working space, a school. Yeah, okay. it really is a school. I mean, so the interesting thing with that was that um, I ran it when I first left New York, where I was making television. I I interviewed for a job at a school at a university, and I got it. Oh, in and New York. no, oh, in Washington, oh, Washington State. Okay, okay. I wanted to get out of New York. I was yeah. trying to figure out how to get out of New York. And I got this job and I was like, oh, shit. Okay. Because I was, thought I was going to have to convince them to hire me. And they were like, nope. The first thing they said is like, this is where you'll be teaching your class. And I was like, oh, okay. So now what do I do for the rest of this interview? I'm not really sure. Uh, and then at the end of the interview, they were like, and this is your start date. And they showed me a date that was a calendar year away from the date that it was and I just I felt like somebody punched me in the chest mm-hmm. um, I was like well what the fuck am I supposed to do for a fucking year before this job starts so 
I um, did what I can't imagine they thought I would do, and I started my own school. <laughs> yeah. I uh, designed it, uh, every aspect of it, uh, from the ground up, from the, the paint, the aesthetic, um, the way it was structured. It is a production office with a kind of a tight artistic uh, aesthetic. And then I wrote a curriculum. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was based on, you know, my experiences, uh, making my own stuff and also working in television. Um, and it was a huge success. It was like, uh, in this trial run phase in Washington, it was a huge success. It was like, we had 70 students in two years. It supported itself financially in the first month. Which was bizarre. Oh, you started it in what? You moved yeah, back to I Washington. Yeah, I did. I started and did it in it Washington, in Bellingham, a tiny town in okay. Bellingham. Okay. Yeah, and um, we had like a thirty-three percent rate of people coming back for three or more classes. Mm -hmm. Kept adding classes. Kept people kept staying. I had um, people go from three minutes. I had three students, which doesn't sound like a lot out of seventy, but. I was particularly proud that three students made it all the way to 40 minutes, which is really long. Mm -hmm. um, and it was good stuff. And I had, you know, professionals walk up to me and be like, students did this? And I was like, yeah, sorry, bro. <laughs> <laughs> like, you can just see them get like dashed mm -hmm. faces like, uh-oh, more competition. Um, but yeah, and so I tried it in LA and it just like immediately failed. Mm -hmm. Like it's such a tough um, market here. Um, and just a difficult city. And I have to say, anybody, LA is such a much more difficult city to survive in than New York. Anybody that's talking about New York, oh my God, New York is easy, easy, easy compared to LA. Mm -hmm. And I could go on about that forever, which I won't. But, and then it was such a cataclysmic failure in Los Angeles for a myriad of reasons, um, which none of which I think have anything to do with the core curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, because I saw it work. I mm -hmm. saw it work for years. Um, I just started, I got funding for film and I just started making films. Yeah. And so it just got super backburnered. Mm -hmm. But I definitely will go back to it. I loved that thing. Mm -hmm. I had a great time teaching the class and I had a great time hanging out there. Um, my professional life has always been wedded with um, interns. Okay. So I've always, from the very beginning of being a, a professional have taught because mm -hmm. the first part of your day every morning was like, you know, sitting down with the interns and trying to figure out what it was they could do and helping them do it. Mm -hmm. So I, to me, it's just a natural part of the production office. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you probably, I'm sure you met some people through doing it here that you could work with on other stuff or could intern with you or, or as a, not, I don't know. Case. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. Did you feel like you had a mentor in filmmaking or, uh, yeah. So I, um, yeah. So what I was trying to get out of the band, I had really long hair, uh, and I had it warm up in like, a this before this, before the top bun thing was such a joke <laughs> and mine wasn't on the top. It was in the back, but, um, still had this stupid bond and went in to the job interviews, you know, um, and tattoos and everything. This was in 2008. And uh, I was doing art delivery in a truck okay. in New York, which is essentially you're like a kind of a glorified truck driver. I did that for six years when I was in a band, uh, driving around the five boroughs, which is a whole nother story. Um, anyway, I was like, I got to get out of this. I was almost going to turn 30 and I was just watching all these people like, you know, 
music is a tough business to grow old in. And I wasn't even interested in trying. I was just like, I don't even want to do this. I want to keep telling stories. This is not the way I want to do it. I want out. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I had thought about film school was so expensive and it didn't seem worth it. Um, and I seen, um, I thought of internships as something that only rich kids could do. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you don't get paid. So I was like, uh, I don't know what to do. And then somebody said, well, you know, you leave and you go to tour and you don't make any money for that. So what's the difference between doing an internship? And I was like, Oh, okay. So I said, <laughs> I, I can, <laughs> I can afford to lose. I was like, that makes sense. Yeah. I can afford to work one less day than I am. So I wrote 50 emails the saying that I could do an internship one day a week Mm -hmm. and I got one reply back and I got uh, back from this uh, production company called punched in the head, which is operated by this guy named Craig Dentron. And he was a basically like a predator producer, shooter editor that was showing up. Yeah. It's a cool Badass kind of term, yeah. Uh, It's just way more badass than it actually is. Not a hitman. Yeah. Um, And so he was starting his first, company making shows for MTV a show called true life. And he was like the perfect person to work for because much to his own chagrin, I'm sure he couldn't help, but train you how to do everything because he never had a company before. And it was his first time. And he was just accidentally showing you how to do everything. Cause that was what he'd been doing on his own for 10 years. So he was great. So I spent a little over two years with him constantly Traveling around America, shooting stuff, working in the office, For doing TV, everything, and, yeah, then, yeah. and then like the you know the Yoda thing. I left like your training is not over, and I'm like, See ya, you know, <laughs> uh, took off and then went and fought you know slayed my own dragons, and mm-hmm. they definitely are formidable foes, I have to say, but ended up surviving maybe almost kind of on accident. And and this is you're still in New York when this is all happening, yeah. Or no, you you when did you move back to the West Coast? I think I had, oh, I'm trying to remember. I think it was in between uh, Kill All Redneck Pricks and The Slits Fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do, yeah, l- working on, w- we don't think that much about how reality TV informs like documentary or like how they're kind yeah. of in the same world. Well, one of the big things I think about that, just even that term, mm-hmm. uh, is that it's a sort of a, garbage bin terminology mm-hmm. for too many different things. Right. And in Same fact, with podcasts, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm sure. Yeah. And yeah. One, of, one of the classes I pitched that I was so upset they didn't take me up on uh, was this thing where we just talk about just open up this casket of this word mm-hmm. and being like, what is this shit? Because like documentary or reality? No, TV. reality yeah, TV. Yeah, yeah. Because at that time, I, uh, I think it would have been a more maybe an interesting conversation than now. But um, just this idea that reality TV is this term that they give to stuff that goes all the way from being like quite legitimate documentary on one side of it to being scripted. Mm-hmm. Right. Like literally scripted. Like and every variable in, in between and then this huge viewership that cannot tell the difference between mm-hmm. what's going on. And so they don't know. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's very dangerous mm-hmm. that you wouldn't know what's going on. Um, and I don't know, it's just very deep water, I think. Yeah, just to like break down what it is, that what the audience expectations are, just like 
like maybe it's just like a truth in advertising in a certain well, and from, way. Yeah. And from being, I'm from the filmmaker point of view, uh, was that what I wanted to do was talk about take these parts, these shows part that that sort of represent the spectrum and sort of show people how they're put together mm-hmm. so that they can see what it, I like to uh, a term I like to call relative truth. Mm-hmm. There's you know anybody who's an adult knows that there isn't truth and untruth. There's <laughs> so much more complicated than that, you know, is that there's this idea of like relative truth. That the whole, you know, defining element of being an adult is knowing the answer to every question is yes and no, mm. which is the most annoying thing about being a kid. You know, you're like, how does this work? And they're just like, oh God. It's like 17 different things. They're like, can you just tell me one? They're like, no. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, so just kind of like opening up those things, and um, so that people could decide. But I think ultimately nobody cares. Mm-hmm. They just <laughs> become entertainment, kind of. Well, and, and the dangerous responsibility that we all take on our shoulders when we do this stuff is that the better job that you do, the least, the less anybody thinks that you did it. Mm-hmm. So the better mm-hmm. I make a movie, or anybody makes a movie, the more. The, and I notice this all the time. The more they're just like, imagine that I just sat there and did nothing mm-hmm. and that this is just true. Mm-hmm. And I just like tripped over it like it's a rock in a field, which right. just could not be further the, from the, the truth. invisible hand. They're yeah. always crafted. Yeah. yeah. Always. Mm-hmm. Is that the documentarian's art is an art of exclusion and an art of inclusion. So you're constantly going around the subject and saying, this is important and this is not important. Mm-hmm. And that's crafting. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? This, this is relative truth. Like I don't set out to deceive anyone, mm-hmm. but I'm a human being. And all of these people are. And anybody tells you that they're presenting an absolute undeniable truth. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Yeah, That's a Bible salesman. <laughs> Um, with this Don Let's film, what's kind of the process it's going to go through? Like, um, you're just going to keep editing and stuff and then try to get a release, uh, get a theatrical. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I guess I don't know so. a lot of the process of that stuff. I mean, well, did you with with Kill Redneck Pricks? Did you do like uh, Indiegogo or like fundraising? No, I don't do crowdsourcing. None of that stuff. Okay. It was yeah. incorrectly reported uh, okay. about the Slitstock that it was a crowdfunded film. Yeah, I think I saw something in the credits was that was confused. Yeah, no, it seemed like it. Okay, not at all. No, uh-huh. um, and I have zero interest in crowdfunding. It's so it seems I like a pain. Yeah, despise it really. Um, it's, mm-hmm. um, I probably shouldn't say that, but it's just, <laughs> it's just, I just don't just go to our Patreon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I just, um, I just, I don't, I just don't want to ask permission to do a project. Okay. Right. So and beholden, it feels like beholden to, to someone. And I, yeah. yeah. And I just, I don't, you know, I'm going to do it regardless. Yeah. When yeah. I've decided to do it, I'm going to do it. And then it's my job to figure out how we do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't want to, I just don't like to be in a situation where at the end of it they go, oh, well, everybody said you can't do this. 
Right. <laughs> Everybody I, mean, got I don't together. know how common that is with those kind of crowdfundings, but I mean, I mean we it, felt cataclysmic. We tried it. Oh, you did try it with the slit stock, uh-huh. and it was. I didn't want to do it, mm-hmm. and then we did it, and it failed, and it failed twice. Oh, and I'll never do it again. Right. Oh, you mean like it didn't hit its its uh, targets and stuff? Right. Yeah, so okay. the so you don't the get Kickstarter. The money? Yeah. We did first, uh-huh. and it just completely failed. We were asking for thirty grand, which is not enough money. Yeah, and it failed at fourteen five. Mm. Um, and then we did it again with Indiegogo, where you can select that. You know, now we we're like, oh, we see this trick coming. So we selected, you know, keep whatever you may yeah, yeah, yeah. thing, and uh, made like three grand. So it didn't. Yeah. You know, very very little. Um, so then I just went back to my original thinking was just like just it's a much tougher well i don't know if it's tougher they're all the roads are tough mm-hmm. um but i just decided i liked it better i guess mm-hmm. uh is to go out and just find film financing companies right i think you'd like it's some just, record labels kind of have their name on on that film. yeah they yeah. did um like recess and and yeah Star yeah, yeah, yeah yeah they don't represent um the line share of the funding mm-hmm um, but yeah, they did, did pitch in, did get their names on there. I also wouldn't do that anymore. Okay. Yeah. But it makes, I guess in the sense that star cleaners is like Jennifer's. Was associated yeah, with no, that, it right? was yeah, totally yeah. fun. And sense, I mean, yeah. they, you know, it was amazing that it happened for that project. I mm-hmm. just, you know, it's, um, films are such a pain in the ass that are so expensive. Right. That I just think it's better for everybody just to like, go with people that are just like, this is not their first rodeo. Gotcha. Okay. I see what you're saying. You know what I mean? Like you're dealing with a film finance company. mm -hmm. They are, they get it. Mm -hmm. They don't like, you don't have conversations where they go, why is this taking so long? And you're just like, actually this is going really fast, (laughs) but -hmm. they don't know that. Right. Because that's an interesting thing for music films, because when you talk to a musician, a film to a musician is never anything more than a slow record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know what right. I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. their whole mind, yeah, is centered around a record, which right. takes a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. And then a film is like doesn't matter if you're doing this two to three times faster than someone else. Mm-hmm. It's never you're never going to make a film as fast as anyone is going to make a record. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, unless you're really heavily screwing around. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. So it's like there's always that sort of difficulty mm-hmm. thing where they're just like. I don't get it. Well, that's what's interesting because I feel like you come from this sort of DIY background. So it's like where where does a DIY person like hit a wall? It's when you have to deal with like this massive financing stuff, right? Major it's levels. Like, it's like you know how to make stuff cheaply and efficiently. And then when you have to deal with like sort of the distribution and the... I mean, there's the two separate answers for that. Okay, One yeah. is uh, major labels. Mm-hmm. There's a couple different answers. Two is not doing everything yourself. Mm-hmm. I survived the first couple of films by not hiring anyone. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, and, but that's a limited thing. I mean, mm-hmm. that essentially is a martyrdom. Right. Right. Well, we, that's why I think we, we think of like nineties indie film or like Robert Rodriguez with like a chair as a dolly or whatever, you know, oh, yeah. that, that kind of stuff. No, it's total. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it goes way beyond. Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes like, I gave up everything to do this. I have to say the first um, film, all of them. all of them. Okay. You yeah. know, it's, I, you know, you don't, I mean, literally like put back cheese, mm-hmm. like, oh, we can't afford, like that cheese is nice. 
we can't afford to eat yeah. that. We're not eating that. Like I, nothing. I mean, you just mm-hmm. give up everything. You give up time. You give up money. You give up everything. And a lot of people are just not willing to do that. Going out, I didn't go out. You know, you just you just make these decisions. Um, but my point is, is that that's what it requires to make a film on no money. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, hopefully, as things go on. You inspire enough confidence in the people with money. And the thing about people with money is they don't like to lose it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, get, they get to the point where they're like, maybe Bill won't lose our money. Mm-hmm. And then they go, okay, well, then let's give him a little bit more. And then each time you get a little bit more. And then each time you hire a little bit more people. And then you get a little bit more of your own life back. Mm-hmm. Like I have a girlfriend for the first time in like years, you know, <laughs> they'd be like actually like theoretically possible that I could like mm-hmm. carve out a part of my mind mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you get a little bit of your own life back every time. But then also I think you uh, reduce the um, amount of years, you know, that you have to give to a film. This is whenever anybody says like, oh, this film took four years, the film took five years. Barring the idea that they have no idea what they're doing, which is probably not it, it's the fact that the first thing I think of when I hear that is nights and weekends. Mm-hmm. Is that somebody is trying to like, it's like swimming through shark infested waters with a baby on your back. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, how do I keep my uh, head above ground or above water uh, and do like eight full-time jobs at the same time, which is making a film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not easy. So it takes like years and years. Yeah. So, so that, and then, you know, once you get more money, you can get paid, mm-hmm. which means that you just wake up in the morning and just go to one job, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is a huge turning point. Yeah. I was weird for me. Cause I started out doing that, mm-hmm. doing that TV. And then, wanting you make a bunch of money in tv mm-hmm. and then wanting to leave to make my own movies and mm-hmm. then it was a real slap in the face when it was like oh but nobody's gonna hire you to make films so you have to start again from the ground up that was really tough right, like like the, that skill set that you got was not they're just two different i don't i wouldn't know if i didn't say that what i would say about it is that they're just you know people are human they live in tribes mm-hmm. and those are just two different tribes Mm-hmm. TV and film, right? Like right. I didn't. I could have kept working in TV, of course, and you tons of people, um, but you know they don't translate. Mm-hmm. Those connections don't go over. Mm-hmm. So you're on your own, which is a very American <laughs> sort of thing as an yeah. artist, anyway. <laughs> how How are you feeling about uh, working with like uh, distribution with like Amazon and Hulu and the streaming services and stuff like that? I mean, those love it films got their theatrical runs. Like you had yeah. to book that in a in well, a very so DIY Killer way, right? Redneck yeah. Pricks. Yeah. So I mm-hmm. self financed that movie, self released it, showed it seventy countries and. Uh, so like theater free. rentals, you have to like no rent, no no. You know, I do like not door do deals, rentals. kind of basically. I or? only do door deals. Yeah yeah yeah. Okay. Only do that was a huge mm-hmm. thing, and yeah. a really interesting thing between Carp and Slits is that um, when I did the Carp thing, they being the theaters, they were like, uh, "We want you to take the hit." And we're like, "Oh, surprise, surprise!" Yeah. Uh, they were like, <laughs> we, "We want you to rent us." So we take no risk and you take all risk. And I'm like, sounds like an unappealing 
yeah. <laughs> offer not that a, I'm not getting offered. Deal, no. So I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just sort of, you know, um, so I went a lot of unconventional routes on mm-hmm. that first one. Did a lot of theaters, but did backs of bars, which a lot of times sucks um, just because of noise. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and uncomfortable chairs. And did that sort of thing. And then with Slits, it was all normal theaters. And in the time period between the two, I think two theaters out of like 80 in two countries, in the UK and in uh, um, the United States, were like, we want you to rent. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, 50-50. And in fact, they most of them didn't fight me on the 50-50. One or two wanted to do 30-70. And I think I agreed to one because it was the second time in that city. But I made it really clear that I wasn't really happy about it. So much so that they became unhappy with me that I was unhappy <laughs> with them yeah. about it. But I was just like, I just, to me, it's worth making the point mm-hmm. that it should be even. Mm-hmm. You have a theater, I have a movie. It's, yeah. They're really hard to make. Yeah. You know, like period. <laughs> I want to see people do stuff like at the Los Feliz three. I think they're just doing rentals. Like I talked to Brett about this. Like I, think I have never seen a rental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I because the same guy I think owns Vista. I think so. Yeah, they're kind of in the same. And website. I believe yeah. I know it's a rental, but I think it's also a buyout. Oh, okay. Of what would have been there? A buyout. Okay, right. So you just have to pay as if it was a sold out screening. Yeah, for we like, don't quote uh, me. But this movie. is what I believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm already quoted, obviously. Yeah, and th- I'm I'm sure like uh, when you do that kind of tour with a film, um, you have to like figure out how to do your own PR. You hire a publicist, or you do. Well, I mean, the thing that's interesting is that it's it's got to be event based, mm-hmm. right? Your Q and A or something. Yeah, and yeah. people. It's an interesting thing to me that people say this thing that I think is very confusing uh, for other people that are interested in getting into the conversation is they, they, they say, do you have distribution? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? There's no, that's ridiculous. It's like, like the record problem. It's again. a ridiculous question. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's not, it's just not like a distribution. is like a fairy godmother that walks into the room and like taps a stick on your head. And now your film is in every hand on every device. I mean, it probably works that way for like Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. sure it does. Obviously it does. But, um, for no one else, mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Like certainly no one on my level. Um, it's it's it would be a more accurate question to be like, do you have distributions? <laughs> because there's like five different deals for every territory. Mm-hmm. You know, streaming, theatrical, um, physical. There's all this different stuff, and so you approach each one completely separately. Mm-hmm. Like so, in the United States, we were on Hulu, but. I also did my own theatrical and in fact didn't want anyone to take the theatrical mm-hmm. because they don't do anything with it typically. Yeah. And it's a niche. And like the first film, like it's like, you know, the people that you want to reach out to, to they, get in the theater. My understanding is that if they, if somebody buys it, um, it usually would just be lumped in with streaming and then mm-hmm. they would just use it. Um, as a sort of a PR device mm-hmm. for the do six or seven shows. And I completely get it. I mean, I fault them in no way. I totally makes sense. Um, because I only do touring because I toured my whole life. Right. Yeah. And so to me, it's just like, you, you know, you finish a record, yeah. you go on tour, you yeah. finish a movie, you go on tour. And so you, you find out what happened, you know, mm-hmm. um, from being isolated at your desk for all those years and you walk <laughs> around the country literally 
and talk to people. And I also go to all my tours on foot as well. So I'm literally walking around. Really? Like planes, trains, automobiles. Uh Yeah. 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 Rental car. Yeah. 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 I don't drive around Mm -hmm. like a band would do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, and I stay at people's houses. Mm -hmm. So it's like, uh, I love it and I didn't want anybody to take it. Do you make some kind of ancillary merch or something like some kind of merch? I always have regular merch. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like DVDs and yeah, you take all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I, I wanted to do that. I don't know how long I'll get to keep doing that Mm -hmm. because ultimately it becomes a decision of like, well, do you want to do this or do you want to make another movie? Mm -hmm. Mm Because you can't be only be in one place at one time. Right. Yeah. So we'll see how that progresses in the future, but. Um, I really enjoy it, mm-hmm. um, and it's just part of my sort of DNA. Mm-hmm. And and you said you were spending a lot of time in the UK. Does John Let's live in the UK? Is most yeah. of the interviews all shot over there? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much everything, mm-hmm. but the adult reenactments were oh. shot in the UK. Adult reenactments were shot here in Los Angeles. Oh, so the kid was Echo in Park. England. Okay, okay. Yeah, the kid had to be in England because the kids talks. Oh, right. I wasn't going to try to have an American do a British accent. <laughs> oh, well, like I'll, an eight-year-old American yeah, kid. Or an adult. <laughs> yeah. I like to say about those accents is they only go one way across right. the pond. That's true. Know? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> Cumberbatch can do anything, but then, yeah. Um, so you're going to probably do a lot of touring, or at, at least it, I think that Don Letts is a, more, is a very known guy in the UK. Oh, in the, compar- yeah. Compared to here. Yeah, oh, f- yeah. for sure. Yeah. And that was part of the reason why I wanted to title it the way we titled it, Rebel mm-hmm. Dread, because mm-hmm. I think the conversation in the UK is, do you want to watch a film about Don Latz? And I think the conversation in the United States is, do you want to watch a movie about a Rebel Dread? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is different. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, because I think Americans would be more likely to be like, yeah, watch a movie about a Rebel Dread. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas like, do you want to watch a movie about Don Latz? The US, they were like, if you catch me up on who we're talking about, (laughs) like they just don't know. Yeah. 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 And he was, yeah. And that's a, that's a really, he's a really interesting dude. That's like, I guess a small, very minor. Obviously you, you saw the the potential in doing this. So you obviously like knew that you were working with something with this guy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, obviously there's a big race thing in the film. Mm -hmm. And to me that was, I mean, you know, I don't think it's ever worth it. Uh, to make a film about a band that's like just cool, mm-hmm. you know, they're yeah. too difficult for that. It can't be like, well, why do you want to do this? About Those guys wore some really sweet pants. <laughs> like that's just <laughs> not a lot of music documentaries. Though, yeah. I, I mean, it's just not enough. Yeah. I mean, there has to be like a deeper tendril into something yeah. that can make people's lives better. Well, yeah, The slits is a, a lot about feminism or even though, even if they didn't term themselves that it's about that missing, part of the dialogue about punk is like the, the role women had in it and also just how, and then with, with Kilrenic pricks, it's sort of like mental health, uh, addiction and just friendship I mean, I and stuff. I feel yeah. like that movie's just like love. Yeah. Yeah. It's about like being in love, mm-hmm. like with what you're doing and who you're doing it with mm-hmm. and all the sort of ugliness that goes along with all that beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, totally. There's got to be something like that. And even all the, the projects that we have lined up for the future, it just doesn't work and it's just not worth it mm-hmm. if there isn't one of those things. And as time goes on, I'm starting to realize that my thing um, is personal freedom. I mean, like we're talking before about grunge, you know, I people need 
like lots of opportunities to exist. And because we're sort of pack animals, um, it means opening up new channels where you go, Hey, you group, we, yeah, come on, you know, come on board. Let's, you know, give you permission to be you. Mm -hmm. And I just find that so unbelievably important. Um, and it was one of the first things that really drew me to the Don um, story is that um, it's a story of inclusion. Mm-hmm. And the biggest sort of takeaway for me is that punk being this ultimate invitation to step over whatever is in front of you is in your way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the reason it's become so big. Like as a uh, punk is sort of like an, as a, as a verb kind of, or exactly. like a means I mean, of, uh, and I know Don's really into approach, this too, yeah. is this idea that if you think punk is a sound, you are grossly misunderstanding what's going mm-hmm. on here. Yeah. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Like you are in no way getting the most of what you can get out of this. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I've always sort of uh, <laughs> abided by that. I think that's true. I mean, you know, if you really want to play like the maximum rock and roll kind of like, you know, game, sure. like, I mean, yeah, what, you know, this fine. doesn't have doesn't end there. a guitar. What's going on? You know, yeah, like, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I know Don, that's been a huge thing. Don's been talking about it for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really, really agree with that. Mm-hmm. Really feel that that's incredibly important. And I think it's fairly stated in the first minute of the film. Yeah. Where it's just like, you know, it's the invitation to be yourself, mm-hmm. you know, um, and to turn problems into assets. And as Don says, you know, as a first generation British born black, mm-hmm. that's something I know a lot about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it seems like you've like taken whatever you've gotten from this really uh, DIY community and methodology and you've applied some of that into like how you, how you, if you it seems like that's I the narrative that maybe people yeah. bring up. It's like, oh, it's a punk guy doing punk docs, you know. I always approach it from uh, the standpoint of what it feels like to be in the band mm-hmm. um, because that's my vantage point. Is that I made the car film because I knew that I had to sort of say goodbye uh, to my brothers mm-hmm. that I'd spent my whole time with. So much so that I didn't even know who I was if they weren't standing there. I mean, it's a huge thing that I don't know. You know, and I'd love to do a film that centers more on this. Uh, we haven't done it yet. But it's that absolute crisis, personal crisis mm-hmm. that happens to you when you when your band is over. You that, don't know who you are. It's like somebody in the car talks like said, some, yeah. your last name is the name of your band. <laughs> right. You literally don't have a name Joey anymore. Ramone, yeah. It reminds me of something. I think, uh, I want to say it's in the, this book. I think it's Sam McFeeder's maybe quote about like, in our generation, instead of going to war, we started bands. <laughs> like it's like Very there's much, something yeah. like a good generationally yeah. bonding about, and like I completely, it's like this kind of familial relationship that's not a blood relationship. It's not even chosen family because the band breaks well, that, up. That's why I pur- <laughs> purposefully mix the social terminology when I talk about carp uh-huh. is because I think it's a really important distinction that the one that I hear you starting to make mm-hmm. is that um, the band thing is sort of equal parts you know family friend lover whatever business partner yeah exactly (laughs) business partner, but also none of those things (laughs) right yeah you know so it's like this really interesting kind of um dynamic 
Um, and I'm just not a music nerd and I don't find music factoids interesting. Mm-hmm. So I just don't approach them from that. And I think I catch some amount of fuck for that. But what, what what's a, a music film that you feel like you really aspired to? And then maybe one that you like, maybe not to say you, you, you talk shit on it or anything, just like something like, like I don't want to fall into the trap that this music film fell into. Trying to remember from for the, the 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 primary question or the first okay yeah question. just really I like think more like what is an inspiration we jam Okano yes I think was one of the first and Carp film uh, got compared to we jam Okano mm-hmm. a lot just be three guys that yeah not exactly. everyone knows about <laughs> yeah yeah that nobody knows about that it was more about, influential than that their was popular. about yeah. friendship not yeah. about a band right, right. really I mean yeah. at the heart of it mm-hmm. and we jam Okano is a great movie yeah um you know and I was honored ever be in the same sentence as that film ever still I am and uh so I think that film to me was like one of the first ones that um you know but I think I don't uh I don't know like I I just think about people Mm -hmm. I, I make music films because that's what people are interested in talking to me about um and I feel like I can have some kind of insight on it um but I really only think about people. Mm-hmm. I watch a lot of um, narrative films, and I watch documentaries. But I watch way more narrative films than I watch. Yeah, me too. And I have a podcast about documentaries. Yeah, right. Yeah. I actually wanted to ask you yeah. how your podcast got started and why. So my co-host, who's not here, he had one day. He has a lot of free time. He just like decided to watch like some like uh, time or someone made a list of the top hundred documentaries you should watch. And he's just like, I'm just going to watch one of these every day. So oh, he wow. got deep into it. Of a hundred. Uh, yeah. I think he watched like this. There's this top hundred list. I have to look, I haven't seen wow, most of that's these. Really what they call a deep dive. Yeah. I I've always liked, uh, I, you know, I took a class on documentaries before I kind of like cut together something way back in the day on like mm-hmm. VHS decks. Oh wow. But yeah, it was way back in the day. Um and they did Literally some film classes. Yeah. It was like uh yeah, I don't know I don't remember what the it was like basically like making a mixtape, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um and then everyone would switch the software the year after that. So I'm like, well that was I guess like, not now a, I know how to do nothing. Yeah, exactly. But but really <laughs> I did probably should have stuck with it, but I, I don't know. Anyway, uh no, I've always been a fan of like these kind of Americana weird like one of my favorite movies we got to cover is Project Grizzly I don't know if you've seen that film it's about a guy who wants to research grizzly bear so he creates a suit the suit yeah I didn't know there was a feature on this guy yeah it's a, it was made by the Canadian film board so it's like this like insane oh it's, wow it's it's a comedy I'm sure it, like yeah. basically like these docs are like kind of like I immediately thought so of Winnebago much. man Oh, yeah, yeah, which I have not actually seen Winnebago Man. I'm actually like, yeah, like uh, I kind of fell into this like co-host role of like, I think I have some ideas about this. And then we've been doing more. It's easier for me to do these interviews with documentary filmmakers in L.A. being that I'm down here. Oh, where is he? Co-host in San Francisco. But he was down uh, here for a while. Um, so is he going to make an appearance on this, like after the fact? No, no just not this you one. And I. Well, because also I talked to he was here last week and we were trying to get that together. And he's like. You know, I don't, I don't know these bands. I don't know if I want. I'm like, oh, yeah. Sure. And then I totally know. You do obviously. All yeah. of a, I saw Carp. Yeah. I didn't see the slits. I saw Ari up in New York in the year 2000. Just causing a scene. It like brownies. <laughs> if oh, you play? remember that 
place. And it was like, I think the Chick 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 guys had just oh, moved yeah. to New York oh, yeah. from Sacramento. Yeah, I used to live in a warehouse. Oh, really? Them. With those yeah. guys? So, like, they were there and I was there. And I think that was it to see, like, Ari with, like, uh, maybe the same singer who ends up being in the, in the later slits. And I just remember her unfurling the dreadlock oh, from right. the top of her head and then just like helicoptering it around the oh, floor yeah. of brownies because it was only like eight of us. So it wasn't going to hit anyone. And that I was never like my got one to go time. To and Debbie so Harry was there. Oh, shit. We, Debbie Harry was there. That was, it was like uh, me, Chick Chick Chick, and Debbie Harry watching Ariel. Wow. It was pretty ridiculous. What was Debbie doing? She just like was in there for a while, then she like walked away. And I'm like, she's I'm like, she has the biggest head. Oh, really? Like a, she's a tiny. She kind of looks like it. Yeah, she's like a really small woman with a huge head, with a big, a big face, a huge, just a giant a huge, face, beautiful, like yeah. round Danish face. Yeah, and yeah. then we were all just like looking at each other, kind of like flipping out a little bit, like we're we're in New York, and this is Debbie Harry's here at the Ari Up Show, and there's only like eight of us. Was pretty I, much I, I was saw like. Bjork in a bar in a very similar sort mm-hmm. of circumstance where it's like 13 people in this bar that's about the size of your apartment. <laughs> yeah. And I was sitting at the bar and I looked over and I'm like, oh, that girl's really pretty. <laughs> and I'm like, she looks a lot like, uh, she's wearing a full-length kimono. <laughs> and then I looked back and I'm like, she looks like Bjork. Oh, yeah. And I'm drinking, I'm like, that is Bjork. <laughs> and she asked for directions. Uh, well, my friend was like, bullshit it's not Bjork and I was like well when she opens her mouth we're gonna know because that is not a very common accent <laughs> no, yeah. and Could it was I have like a cup it was perfume? scripted <laughs> yeah. she leaned in between the two of us and asked the bartenders for direction to the cab stand and the cutest little Icelandic yeah. accent which I will not no. you know, I just try tried. to do it terrible. Yeah. but so luckily for me the bartender gave sort of shoddy directions uh, <laughs> so I was like I was I wasn't gonna talk to her unless I had something to say, but now I did because yeah. he gave these terrible directions. So I was like, actually, you can't see it when you go outside. You have to walk around. Anyway, and she looked at me with this like intense mm-hmm. eyes, which is just like really strong, fierce eyes. And she's asking me some questions about it, which I answered. And then at the end, she's like, Okay. And she pulls on this jacket that's completely white made out of beads and feathers and looks just when you thought she couldn't look any more insane and then just walks out into the ghetto in the middle of the night. And I was like, turn to my friends. I'm like, no one will ever see Bjork again. Oh, no. Like, <laughs> like a swan in the, in the, in the that city. That neighborhood yeah. uh, in Brooklyn at that time, people called it the dead zone. Because it was uh, just miles of oh, roll man. downs down yeah. Broadway at that time of night. But I wonder if people gave her a clear birth. Or <laughs> In a weird way, actually, I feel like I'm sure Ariup was like looking at Bjork and being like, she gets away with it. She can do whatever. Oh, I'm sure, you know, I'm like, sure. Like she does the weird outfits and the. Yeah. But I mean, her vibe seemed very very different vibe altogether. Did you ever interact yeah. with uh, Ari? And I did. I got yeah. to meet her a few times. Uh-huh. I, um, the weirdest one was the first one because I lived in a punk house in uh, Portland for a year, Oregon, uh, in 2006. Mm-hmm. I took a year off in New York and I uh, woke up and she was in my living room <laughs> because it was an old punk house. Been going on, still, still going on, but probably not for much longer the way that Portland's well, yeah, the way Portland's Portland. so punk now they can't have a punk house yeah uh which is funny um and then uh 
but this punk has been going on for like 20 years or whatever, maybe 25 years now. And the, you know, the woman that ran it just brought them home. You know, they brought band, you know, bands were there all the mm-hmm. time. Um, so just woke up and Tess, who I became really close with eventually, we worked on the movie together. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ari sitting there. Um, and then I met her again in Brooklyn. And, and I think it was funny, like for me, the way we ended up handling her death in the film uh, was that she's basically more or less missing in the first part, right? People talk about her mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. And then she just kind of whirlwinds in and takes over the whole entire movie for like 20 minutes. Because mm-hmm. um, you have all that footage, right? That Jennifer shot. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So when it gets to catches up to 2005, she just like whirls in and like, you know. But that to me is exactly like it is in real life of meeting her where it's like the first thing I thought when I met her was like whatever was previously going on in this room is now <laughs> now over. Yeah. yeah. It's completely over. in fact no one can even remember yeah what was going on in this room before Ari walked into it. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit like that in the movie. She yeah. just kind of like magics in and just takes everything totally. over. Totally. I totally got that sense. But I was just thinking <laughs> about how like young she was when she started all that stuff. I mean, like I didn't realize that she was like 14 when that band started. Well, one of the cool things about, you know, is that obviously, um, you know, uh, you hear a lot about um, women living in a symbolic wor- a world of like, you know, these male rock... But Ari was literally living in a world of male rock stars. Her mom was a promoter in Germany. Mm-hmm. She uh, remembered Jimi Hendrix as the guy in the living room, right? Yeah. Later, she was quoted as later on. She's like, I knew he had a band, but I didn't know what it was called. <laughs> the Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, because she, he, Jimi Hendrix was just a friend of her mom. Yeah. And it doesn't end there. There's lots of other, you know, yes. Like, well, there's mm-hmm. a lot of those bands. Um, and then, you know, when they made it to London, there were all those bands and all those people. And so Ari was literally like, Viv tells this great story about, uh, didn't end up being in the film, but it's a great line where she goes, we, you know, we would go to these parties and we go over to the house and there'd be like a little girl that would like do the period pirouette for everybody before she's sent off to bed. Mm-hmm. And then we stay up and party, and that was Ari. Yeah, yeah. That's totally, and then the people partying just happen to be like Joe Strummer and stuff. Yeah, because yeah. so she's insane. just like, because like the little kids do before their parents stay yeah. up and drink brandy with their dinner guests or whatever, is they just like, you know, you do your little entertainment piece. Yeah. And then get sent upstairs to, you know, off to bed. I guess that's what made me actually think about Bjork just then, because she was in a band when she was like, 12 or 13 oh, too. Like, uh, Kukul was like a band that was like on Crass oh, Records. Okay, or, okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, like, when I think about how young are, and then also think about the fact that I have that album cover, I'm just like, do I have an album cover with a naked girl under 18, like in my record collection? Is oh, that, right. Yeah, is yeah, that, yeah, yeah. And maybe in England that was. And my door is going to get kicked in <laughs> yeah, at I'm any like, moment. If, I've if never thought modern. about that. I, I, actually, I just thought of it last night when I watched that. I'm like, That's so oh, funny. man, I did not even think of that. Um, it is different in England. Yeah, it might be. Because I remember 16. the Bow Wow Wow. Because uh, it's 16 yeah. in England, also, not Annabelle. 18. Oh, it's 16. And then Bow, uh, Annabelle from Bow Wow was like naked on her album cover too, which is another Malcolm McLaren. Well, like, I hope you don't get arrested, exciting. but I can't guarantee it. <laughs> I shouldn't at this point. I was not the original <laughs> purchaser of Cut. Um, 
Well, Bill, this has been a real interesting, fun time talking to you about Absolutely. music. Me. I mean, I feel like we music nerded out a little bit. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, so uh, you can find how to be uh, here to be heard on Hulu. Yeah. And you can find Kill Redneck Pricks on Amazon. Yep. And Rebel Dread. Nowhere yet. Nowhere yet, but it's 2019 <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, you, you yeah. feel like, you feel like you're. Oh yeah. How, what percentage would you say? Well, is so gonna right make it now we're just re- we're replacing um, like footage, mm-hmm. like photos with higher quality photos, and doing a lot of our legal stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that's done, I always take it as an opportunity to sneak in one more creative edit, which is why I did that in progress mm-hmm. the other night to be like, you know, what can we do to to make this even better? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll be sneaking that in, and then. Yeah, then we have, then we you know, we go through the whole rigmarole, find a premiere, and yeah. then start, you know, the sales guy, uh, my producing partner, Mark Venice from Movie House, start um, start taking it out mm-hmm. and talking around. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll go and, go and do all that stuff and uh, should be good. And we have lots of, lots of stuff lined up for yeah. next year to make. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, best of luck with everything. Thank you. Thank uh, you very we much. will. We would love to take your documentary class sometime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. like uh, maybe we'll make a podcast of it or something. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, get that going. Get a moment to get that going again. Come back. Talk about that. I could easily talk about that for now. Yeah. I got a cup. I have like two ideas which I'll talk to you off mic about, which I yeah, think yeah. could be really interesting. For sure. All right, Bill Badgley. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about SupDoc at SupDocPodcast.com. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Our theme song was written by David Siegel, and our show was engineered by Will Scoville. If you want us to cover a doc, have suggestions for guests, or you just want to reach out, please email us at SupDocPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.